0: Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with the scripture reading and a message. We would love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. If you are here in Berkeley, Epworth's worship is at 10am on Sunday mornings at 1953 Hopkins on the corner of Napa and Hopkins. Or if you connect with our podcast from further away, we would invite you to visit our website, epworthberkeley.org. We'd Invite you to keep seeking to grow in faith and to stop by the next time you're in Berkeley.
1: Good morning, my name is Carol Bombauer. The scripture this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter four, verses 13 through 21, which can be found on page 61 in the New Testament if you would like to follow along. Immediately before this passage, Jesus has just been in the wilderness where the devil has been tempting him. When the devil finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen.
0: When I was a child of about five or six or seven, I had this recurring dream. I would be sitting on the top of a concrete wall, a sheer face that rose up about 6 to 10 feet and ran along a sidewalk next to a very steep hill. And the hill was actually a city street and there were cars parked along the edge and sometimes there were people walking up and down the street. And I'd be sitting on the edge of that wall, and my feet would be dangling down, and I'd be swinging my legs back and forth, in and out, watching, uh, uh, concerned that I was a little person at the top of a very high wall, at the top of a very steep street. Sometimes I would just sit there, and sometimes I would fall. And I would tumble off the wall, and then I'd tumble down the street. And um, I was—I would—I would be sort of conscious of the the momentum I was gaining, but I wasn't terrified. I was a, a little concerned, um, and and thinking this probably isn't good. <laughs> But then the harm never came. There was never any crash at the end. And at the end of this dream, I would always fall into a bunch of mattresses that were laid out at a gas station, (laughs) cushioning me caught safe. Well, it wasn't until I came to California that I realized that I think I was dreaming about San Francisco. The steepest streets like the ones that go up to Court Tower or in Pacific Heights seem to match those those streets from my dreams. Now, how did these images come into my dreams? I grew up in Kansas City, and I—I I don't know if I saw a picture on, you know, on television or in some book of the streets in San Francisco and how these streets came into my unconscious imagination. Um, maybe it was something else. I don't know. But what I do know is that um, as much as I appreciate the relatively flatter and rolling hills of Northeastern Kansas, making my home in Northern California for the last 20 years has been an essential part of my own coming into wholeness. I can only believe that there was something in this dream that was beckoning towards a life of heights and good risk and challenge and assurance and promise of fulfillment. In our scripture today from Luke, we have this very familiar text of Jesus boldly yet calmly entering the synagogue in Nazareth as a young man, passing the elders as, as they see him and he's returning to the place where he was formed in faith and where he learned the scriptures as a boy and then as a teenager and as, as a, an early young adult. The scripture tells us that he had already been preaching and teaching in the area, and news of him was spreading. And so he enters the synagogue, he sits down, and he prepares for worship. After the Torah portion had been read for the day, Jesus rises, likely, as was the custom in that day, when a visiting rabbi wanted to speak. And so Jesus was given what is known as the Haftorah portion of the worship to read. This is the, the portion of the scripture that comes from the prophets. And it's not clear if, if Jesus chose the Isaiah text or if that was the prescribed text for the day. But what is interesting about what Jesus does here is that he does not read the Isaiah text verbatim. What I believe we are seeing here is is an opening of Jesus' self to the power and knowledge and authority of the Holy Spirit. What he is saying is that there is more to God's dream than what has been able to be recorded in the text, and that the wisdom provided by the Holy Spirit is what is needed to fill out the picture and truly hear God's voice. So Jesus paraphrases Isaiah chapter 61, verses one through two, kind of interpreting as he goes, and then he inserts a verse from an earlier chapter concerning the freedom of the oppressed. And then instead of ending with the words that end Isaiah's verse two, which declare a day of vengeance of the Lord... Jesus truncates the verse and ends with the words that declare a year of the Lord's favor. Finally, he closes his reading with these words, which I imagine he delivered with confidence and serenity. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And my guess... is that that in the synagogue, people were just kind of staring at him, mouths maybe a little agape, and I imagine the thought on many minds was, who does he think he is? How does he have the authority to paraphrase and interpret and say that the scripture has been fulfilled today in our hearing? When Jesus returns to Nazareth, my guess is that initially it was kind of a, a local boy makes good flavor. And, and people were excited that he was back and that when he showed up at the synagogue, I, I imagine he was very much welcomed. The kid is back. He's done good. He's been out there preaching. People like what he's doing. People are interested in what he's saying. He has this hometown status and this growing reputation, and it it suggests to us that when he shows up, the people who have gathered are going to be eager to hear him speak. But we know from other texts that soon this early local pride gave way to ambivalence and then in some revilement. And I believe that ultimately, his earthly death begins here. Some of us, of course, believe that this moment that Jesus said today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing was the moment at which he was proclaiming himself the Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. And the text can certainly be read that way. But another very significant thing that is going on here is that Jesus is naming and claiming an authority beyond the text. He is communicating that, unlike other rabbis at the time, he was not basing what he knew solely on the information contained in the law and the prophets. Jesus instead was demonstrating that he was also informed by an authority outside the accepted source of law and the prophets and the traditions of first century Judaism. He was proclaiming that he was also informed by the Holy Spirit. And there was another authority and source of knowledge beyond this established power structure. And this, my friend, my friends, this is, this is what we call a radical epistemology. This is a radical way of constructing how he knows what he knows, in the midst of empire, and by empire I mean an entity that is transnational and transcontinental, but not transcendent, and, it's, and, and establishes itself as the authority over bodies and thoughts. In the midst of empire, true justice and peace are blocked from manifesting unless, unless, We claim a higher authority than empire. Jesus, this first century Jew who lived under the rule of the Roman Empire, came not only to preach and to teach, but to show us how to be God's people in any age. It's an important message for us today, even while our own 21st century empire wants to be the only authority in our lives. We do so much today to properly inform ourselves. As a congregation, we study and we read together. I imagine many of us take in a variety of news sources from radio and online and print, if not daily, then almost daily. This is important. And please don't think I'm trying to diminish this. Educating and informing ourselves is a necessary way for us to grow in faith, grow in our compassion for each other, and to understand more fully what justice means and what freedom from oppression really means, how we claim it for ourselves and how we claim it for others. But today the scripture asks us to access a very different source of information. It reminds us that our own powers of understanding, our own human sources of wisdom are forever and eternally limited. If our information and education if our thinking and planning is not ultimately drawn from God, who is the source of all wisdom and truth, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will be only an incomplete picture. We know this is true. Every time a coincidence coincidence, gives us an answer to a question that we've been struggling with, or or when we open our minds in prayer and find a direction we hadn't known was there before, we're reminded of this holy source of knowing. But we forget, and instead we trust on our own powers of intellect and reason alone. The purpose of dreams in human experience is not completely understood by science. But the spiritual world has long held that dreams are the way that God speaks to us and breaks through our hubris that wrongly suggests that we already know all we need to know dreams remind us that the future God has in store for us is so far beyond what we can per- perceive and conceive at this moment in, our, in, in time. And so just like that recurring dream that I had as a child, God gives us glimpses of God's promises. Even if we can't completely understand them in our limitedness, we are drawn in to God's dream. When we let go and allow in this source of wisdom and knowing, then indeed we move closer to God's good news of release, of health and wholeness, of freedom and peace. Think about the last time that you stilled your mind and listened for that other wisdom, that voice, that spirit that is both out there and in here. Did you receive new insight? Did you understand something afresh? Or did you just notice what was always right in front of you that you hadn't seen before? This is the Spirit trying to break through to us, opening us to the God flow that is present in every moment. It is grace, it is mercy, it is God. January is one of my favorite months, especially the first part of January. And when I'm quiet and still and listening to the pulse of the world, I feel like I can hear a collective sigh of relief. The intensity of the holiday season is over, the darkest day of the year is past, and for a moment, there's a breather, a rest, a sense of being overdoing. Sometimes I forget to listen for it. And then January is gone. But when I do, when I tap into that collective exhale, it is sweet. This spirit sense of well-being and hope counters the message from Empire that says, all is not well. That message from Empire that says all is not well is what traps us and holds us in Empire's power. But we know through our faith that this is not the case. And we hear the words of 14th century Christian mystic Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. I'm guessing you know this sense that I'm referring to this mindfulness, it's always there even if we forget to tap into it. Grace, mercy, peace, God. The great artist Martha Graham revolutionized dance by tapping into this spirit. She was trained in the style of dance prevalent in the 1910s and the 20s, but embarked on her own path in 1923 to make dance an art form that was grounded in the rawness of human experience as opposed to just a mere form of entertainment. What she was seeking was to be informed not by the conventions of the day, but by the spirit. Graham said, there is a vitality A life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work, but you do have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. You are the unique creation of the one creator and an essential part of the realization of God's dream. Listen for the spirit and respond to the invitation to co-create a transformed world with the one who gives life, the one who came so that we might live and the one who breathes life into us even now.